Hi, welcome back to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am Davida Goldberg, today's host. We'll be talking to Professor Lars Rinsmann of the University of Groningen about his new book, The Politics of Unreason, The Frankfurt School and the Origins of Antisemitism, which was published this year, 2020, uh, excuse me, 2017. Um, Lars, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Davida. Uh, so to begin today's conversation, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, what eventually led you to your interest. Sure. This is a, a long story, but I tried to uh, give, a, give a short version of it. Um, I, uh, there are two tracks, really. I'm uh, a German. I grew up in uh, post-war Germany, really, um, in many ways, a second generation, uh, between second and third generation uh, after the Holocaust, after World War II. And uh, so obviously there's a personal um, aspect to it um, uh, being uh, confronted with dealing with processing in what was still at the time when I was young, a very, um, let's put it, uh, repressive um, climate and uh, um, notwithstanding anything that you hear about uh, post-war Germany and the so-called world champions of coming to terms with the past, uh, there wasn't really much space of really processing what has happened and uh, addressing questions of perpetratorship, who was actually involved, uh, family, relatives, uh, Germans, uh, ordinary Germans. All of these debates were just really much later in the 1990s, not when I was uh, growing up. So I developed this interest... In, in so when you were growing up, was that the like the eighties? Is that yeah? The eighties like, yeah. would be uh, uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, so I was born in nineteen seventy, and so it's been really a child of the seventies and eighties. Um, uh, you know, the late uh, decades of of the Cold War, and uh, overshadowed by all other kind of conflicts, and uh, only um, uh, really during the nineteen eighties there was a beginning movement of of young people challenging thinking about local histories of uh, developing and trying to find an understanding of local histories of uh, um, the Holocaust. So, um, and a big part of that, of course, was a haunting question, a question that really wasn't addressed much at all, the question of anti-Semitism. So, I began becoming interested in the subject and examining more, exploring more on the question of anti-Semitism, which is why and this is a track that has been with me. I've become a scholar of anti-Semitism, and uh, um, by now I serve in various functions in that, on editorial boards and uh, doing work on anti-Semitism, also in uh, different um, uh, uh, contexts um, over the years. And this is like one trajectory of my scholarly uh, career. And the other track that uh, um, I was interested in, I'm a political theorist. Um, I'm a political scientist, but also a political theorist. And um, since I was a teenager, I was young, I was left-wing, I was uh, politicized, and I was interested in in the Frankfurt School, um, frankly, and I, um, I I read these, you know, early on as a, as a teenager, still going to high school, I started to read these uh, articles and books um, by by the Frankfurt School. So uh, um, so in this sense, and I say that at the beginning of the book, is really uh, this is um, a, a, it's been a long time coming. I've read uh, I've wrote many other books and did many other research projects in between, but my first book where that was actually published. Um, as a uh, result from my, of my master thesis um, in the 1990s, was already on the subject of the Frankfurt School and anti-Semitism. So uh, for me, it's a kind of, uh, uh, if you will, an ongoing lifetime project. Uh, and this is why probably the book also is uh, 600 pages and not just 200. 
Okay, um, wow. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of questions just going back, taking you back to what you've just said. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, what what did the textbooks in high school, for example, cover in Germany in the period that you're talking about? Not much. How really. did they not much. They really, um, to be honest, uh, uh, there's a lot of variation um, when you think about it. Um, uh, there was, uh, first of all, in Germany, the educational system is uh, um, organized in complete authority of the of the states. Uh, it's actually that's a, a consequence of the restructuring of post-war Germany and democratization, really following the U.S. model, where educational authority is very much uh, a matter of states of the uh, um, uh, below the federal level. Um, and so you see a lot of variation of how uh, post-war, uh, how World War II and history, and in particular the Shoah, was taught or not taught at all in different uh, states. And then you have, of course, the variation of different schools and um, and uh, of different teachers. And I ask this question: I teach uh, um, these days. I always teach an introductory course into European politics and society in the Netherlands. And we have a very multicultural, very cosmopolitan. Uh, student body and um, and one session we always do is on the legacies of Auschwitz and we have seminar sessions. We ask students, um, what are your experiences with uh, um, being educated about the Holocaust in World War II? And there's still an enormous variation. That's what I experienced in the 1980s already. It was a huge variation. I knew that other people, in some cases, uh, young teachers were active, challenging and, and raising questions and teaching the, the history of the Holocaust. In other cases, not at all. And I was actually in the situation that I, I had a teacher, a history teacher, um, who uh, almost was close to denying the Holocaust. Um, uh, so I was certainly not exposed to uh, this claim that you he hear once in a while in the in the papers uh, that we have this overexposure of of Holocaust education that's uh, it's not the case today it certainly wasn't the case then and in my personal case it was rather the uh, um, the situation that uh, um, uh, the guy was very radical right wing um, my history teacher and basically blamed Roosevelt for the war. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that could be a good launching point into some of the meat of your book, because you mentioned in your book, and I think it's a quote from Jeffrey Isaac, mm -hmm. that thousands of pages about justice and morality have been published without mention of Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And that Auschwitz is a, you, you say that Auschwitz is a neglected legacy. Mm -hmm. And it, it did occur to me that many people would be surprised at that turn of phrase, having heard that Auschwitz is a actually a Holocaust industry. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I wonder what insights from critical theory can help us understand um, that first part. Why, why is Auschwitz a neglected and legacy? Why have we not been talking about mm -hmm. the Holocaust? Because ultimately it's a, uh, it, it is and it will remain an uncomfortable topic. Uh, it's an uncomfortable topic for um, uh Everyone uh, in the world, it's not easy to face this uh, un the unspeakable crimes of uh, of the shore. Um, it's not easy to address a genocide. It's not uh, pleasurable. It's not fun. And of course, it is loaded with all kinds of uh, effective um, uh, elements. And particularly, that's the case in the context, of course, of uh, post-war German history. Um, so uh, um, when you really look at it, um, uh, the Holocaust, of course, um, since the 1980s, um, has recovered or has uh, um, gained a sort of uh, a spotlight. And there was a, a basically belated processing 
um, that some authors then very were very quick to uh, almost defame as Holocaust industry, as an overdoing it, an over-memorializing. But the reality of it, this, these were very belated processes. There wasn't much a memory or memorialization um, for many decades after 1945. Um, right. Survivors didn't have the opportunity to speak up. Um, uh, they were kind of like their memory was, was isolated, marginalized, forgotten. And no one really talked about it in the public. No one was interested in that. Right. I think um, the critical theorists have coined a term that you that you go into in your book, um, secondary anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Do, you, mm-hmm. do you think that that was... Uh, part of what was going on, and can you describe what that uh, what secondary anti-Semitism was? Um, secondary anti-Semitism was a term um, by the Frankfurt School coined in the context of really post-war Germany, and it means basically that um, uh, the, the the rejection or discrimination against Jews, um, um, not that old t- types of anti-Semitism had simply disappeared, but there's a new dimension to. Uh, uh, anti-Semitism. It's not secondary that it's less, in the sense that it's less forceful or it's less uh, um, a powerful type of ideology or resentment, um, but it's secondary in the sense that um, it's an anti-Semitism that is driven by the rejection of dealing with the past, uh, by the desire to glorify the national past. And it's impossible, frankly, to glorify a national past um, from a historical, sober, historical point of view when you have, uh, uh, when you live in a country that committed these uh, enormous atrocities. Uh, So there's always this stain on, on the history. And there's also, of course, the very uncomfortable uh, a very pressing memory of uh, um, uh, of these crimes, and if you are not willing to deal with that, if you don't, will, you're not willing to accept these crimes, then of course you try to blame someone else for the crimes and uh, or for bringing up the topic of uh, the Holocaust and Auschwitz. And for a long uh, period um, and still today, um, that's a motivation that uh, Jews are blamed basically for bringing up uh, the Holocaust or, in other words, to instrumentalize the Holocaust for their interests uh, um, or um, making it a subject and basically um, uh, um, uh, attacking the Germans. So that's the kind of co- configuration. It's, a, it's a, uh, an anti-Semitism uh, uh, after Auschwitz that is an anti-Semitism that to a large extent uh, takes its energy um, out of the desire to repress, reject, downplay what has happened during those uh, uh, dark years. Right. So what I think I understood from your book is that it's also, um, we can understand the psychology of this uh, denial mm-hmm. even more clearly through some of the kind of um, Freud plus um, theories that they that they. Um, that the critical theorists uh, bring into understanding the anti-Semite as a disposition, as a psychological disposition. So somebody who for some reason, and maybe you can help us understand how these personalities get formed as well, but that um, the personality is prone to projecting outwards mm-hmm. uh, their negative emotions. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if um, on, you can talk to us a little bit about what is the basis of anti-Semitism according to the critical theory school. And then, well, just to give you a kind of preview, I, if you can tell us a little bit about that kind of basic fundamental definitions of, of anti-Semitism, we can also then dial back and talk about exactly who were the critical theorists. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
Okay, sounds great. Um, well, the, fir- the, the first claim, um, or that's a crucial claim for um, the critical theories, and that to some extent there's a link between what we just talked about, secondary anti-Semitism and primary anti-Semitism. In both cases, there are um, the critical theories early on claim, uh, starting with their studies of authoritarianism in the 1920s and then going to the 1930s and really changing and maturing their theories and their empirical work in the 1940s. Um, they claim that there is a link between this um, anti-Semitic, these anti-Semitic projections uh, we began to talk about and certain social dispositions, um, social psychological dispositions. So uh, the claim is that there's a certain authoritarianism that is uh, uh, to some extent still present in modern society, to some extent even reinforced by modern society, that makes people more likely to um, to actually uh, project uh, their insight uh, outward to um, uh, onto outgroups in particular here uh, towards Jews. So the claim is there's certain social psychological dispositions, and these dispositions are described by the critical theories, cri- critical theorists, as um, the desire to uh, conform to um, social rules, to blindly conform to social rules. Um, the desire to, um, or a, a precondition or a condition of authoritarian aggressiveness, um, the uh, disposition to um, project one's inner feelings rather than to reflect on them, um, the disposition to project sexuality and, uh, and desires and problems to the outside world. Um, and all of this kind of uh, forms, according to critical theory, a, a syndrome, an authoritarian syndrome. Um, that uh, um, is not just represented in one person or a particular group, but is actually a widespread phenomenon that people uh, um, are um, shaped by this kind of authoritarian dispositions that makes them more susceptible to all kinds of prejudices, all kinds of resentments, and in a particular way also to anti-Semitism. And one final uh, note on that is, so when we talked about secondary anti-Semitism, this, this desire to not talk about the past, for many in the second, third generation, it's never about personal guilt. It's about some kind of collective guilt. It's some kind of stain on the collective, on the, the, the nation. And um, for critical th- theorists, there's a strong link between the need for this kind of collective national identity or national gratification, uh, the gratification to be something of a stronger, bigger, larger identity and collective um, that is particularly strong among people who share these authoritarian dispositions. And uh, so there is a link between primary and secondary anti-Semitism or modern anti-Semitism and the secondary anti-Semitism in the sense that both are uh, um, showing this longing for being part of a strong identity, a strong national collective and trying to restore that strong uh, collective. And that is some of the things, of course, that we are seeing uh, that are going on uh, in this um, day and age when the, this, this, this cultural expression, the need of a strong national, um, uh, a glorified national I- uh, identity and collective has become uh, resurging and become more, po- more powerful in the, in the globalized world again. 
Yeah, I think um, later on, I'm hoping to get to the question of mm-hmm. uh, what is that relationship between modernity and what they call the post-liberal personality and anti-Semitism and ongoing anti-Semitism. Um, but for right now, one of the um, what I, as I'm listening to, I just want to uh, con- uh, to confirm my understanding of what you're saying, which is that that the authoritarian syndrome is both a personality uh, type. And it is reinforced by some kind of social mm-hmm. arrangement, social structure. So the two things are going together. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, that's exactly right. So um, uh, as is often is with the Frankfurt School, which is a very kind of, of course, com- complex, philosophically informed type of thinking, very much adapted to uh, um, uh, theorems, ideas from Karl Marx, from Sigmund Freud, from Max Weber, uh, even uh, Nietzsche and others, um, Kant and Hegel, of course. Uh, so it's a complex, sophisticated philosophical framework that goes into uh, an interdisciplinary framework of understanding, exploring issues of anti-Semitism. So when we look at that, for the critical theorists, it is the focus on examining empirically uh, at the time already, um, these kind of, and at the time, certainly uh, um, groundbreaking research on uh, authoritarian dispositions, um, they call it the F scale, um, uh, the uh, fascism scale, uh, in the 1940s. Right. So you're referring to some of the empirical, some of the yeah. empirical studies that they did in the 40s. Can we start talking, um, first of all, about the, those early 30s? Because I do, fi- I do mm-hmm. find it really surprising and intriguing that they had this interdisciplinary institute set up where they were doing psychology and social theory and empirical studies and theorizing. And I wonder if you can tell us about the genesis of the Institute and who were the main players and just um, kind of uh, uh, start at the beginning since we started kind of at the end there with um, the modern situation, Um, start back at the beginning and tell me uh, like an intro to this field. Absolutely. Um, The Frankfurt School is really identified only later on uh, with Frankfurt because its uh, its origins were in Frankfurt. So um, uh, it's been a whole group of of scholars uh, at the time in the 1920s in the Weimar Republic in Frankfurt who got together um, at the University of Frankfurt uh, and around the University of Frankfurt to uh, found this institute of an interdisciplinary study. This already was groundbreaking at the time. And uh, all of them initially inspired by some kind of unorthodox uh, Marxism, by some kind of left-wing Marxist uh, background. Um, And uh, the main uh, um, theorists, the main thinkers, the main researchers uh, that identified with the Frankfurt School and that ultimately formed the core um, were uh, Theodore W. Adorno, um, uh, Leo Löwenthal, whom I had the pleasure to uh, meet when uh, in 1992, uh, half a year before he passed away in Berkeley. Um, uh, um, uh, Herbert Marcuse, very influential in uh, the New Left, also in America, both in Germany and America, in fact. Um, and Max Horkheimer. And Max Horkheimer and Theodore W. Adorno Eventually, uh, all of them migrated to the U.S., um, reestablished the institute that they had helped to found in the 1920s and early 30s, and uh, uh, emigrated to the the U.S., reestablished the institute affiliated with Columbia University um, in the 1940s, and eventually um, Horkheimer and Adorno moved back to Frankfurt, whereas Löwenthal and Marcuse stayed in the U.S., Uh, Marcuse 
um, uh, with various uh, positions, um, uh, including uh, years at Brandeis um, and uh, San Diego and um, uh, Leuventhal um, as a professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. Okay, right. So how can you explain to me, how is it that they came up with this idea of an interdisciplinary mm -hmm. institute? Oh, that's a, um, a complex story. There's a different uh, trajectories. Um, uh, they thought that in many ways, um, uh, they made a distinction very early on that evolved to an essay of my Max Horkheim in the 1930s called uh, Traditional and Critical Theory. Um, uh, they had uh, started research project in the 1920s to, they just basically realized that a lot of social phenomenon and problems could not be understood, and that was the kind of beginning of uh, of this in a in a purely strictly disciplinary framework. Um, so, in many ways, they were sociologists, uh, philosophers. They themselves had different types of trainings. Um, so, uh, Adorno, for example, started out as, as clearly as a philosopher who who then later on uh, um, became a sociologist uh, and actually was trained in in sociological. Uh, research and became real and soon the critical theorists when their own studies and when they started them they uh, were not so interested in political psychology um, but one other name I forgot to mention who was very instrumental at the beginning of the school uh, was Erich Fromm who was very much interested in psychology so the different fields came together uh, from the start they were different scholars um, with different training and all of them shared um, the idea that well there are limitations to our individual training in the individual school and of course in a way, um, the Marx assumption or the Marxist uh, starting point helped in that because Marx himself, of course, is by its very nature an interdisciplinary thinker, a philosopher, an economist, if you will, uh, right. a sociologist. He visited factories and, and uh, yeah. talked to people supposedly and not, didn't just sit at his desk. But um, it's interesting because you mentioned in the book that, um, that a lot of readers of critical theory don't really believe that the empirical work have that much validity or that much impact on the theory. Mm -hmm. And yet um, you also uh, tell the tale of Horkheimer's, um, of Horkheimer's conversion in his theories of anti-Semitism from um, an early 30s essay, I believe, um, where he considers anti-Semitism, as you say, as, quote, an epiphenomenon of secondary relevance mm -hmm. to the problem of labor and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that anti-Semitism, I think, as far as Horkheimer was concerned in that early work, was just a cynical capitalist strategy of the elite that was being that was being used against workers to distract them. Or maybe it was a purely reflexive reaction to economic crises, which is how you put it, um, uh, that the workers were just reacting to crises that and the anti-Semitism anti itself was not really the issue. And yet it was the empirical studies, as far as I can uh, understand from what you've written, that helped them change their minds even early in the 1930s. Is that is that the case? And can you explain what that interplay was? Yes, uh, um, I think that's a, a very good uh, summary of, of some of the arguments. One of the major arguments I make in the book is really that um, the experience of the Holocaust, the experience of uh, doing their studies in exile, the experience of anti-Semitism transformed critical theory. And what you what you showed, what you referred to with the uh, case of Max Horn, Korkheimer, this might be, be um, the most, on the one hand, the most drastic 
um, example of this change, uh, Mark Sorkheimer, and also exemplary, exemplifying uh, this transformation. Uh, as you said, Mark Sorkheimer uh, um, had published an essay uh, in the 1930s, when there were already other studies by Erich Fromm and others pointing to the direction that uh, authoritarianism, anti-Semitism, the psychological dimension is very important. Horkheimer at the time still didn't really buy into that, was very much working in this Marxist framework where critical theory at large started, um, uh, and this Marxist, uh, the early Marx, one should say, understanding that uh, um, uh, driven by a philosophy of history, that there are these two classes clashing, and it basically the bourgeoisie um, or the ruling class uses uh, stereotypes, anti-Semitism, prejudices, resentments to simply deflect from its crisis and from uh, um, uh, the oppression it exercises. A very classical Marxist interpretation that is still prevalent in Hauckamer's writing of the 1930s. Now, what happens here is um, uh, for some of the critical theorists, even Adorno, um, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, uh, later on that as it evolves, initially... Uh, when they, they were in exile, they didn't fully grasp the full nature uh, of it. Um, uh, Hannah Arendt uh, um, uh, said in an interview she only fully uh, knew what was happening in Auschwitz by 1943. Um, in these uh, early years, this transformation between the 1930s and 1940s took place, and uh, all of these scholars, including Adorno and Horkheimer most prominently, uh, started to recognize the relevance of anti-Semitism, the relevance and the power of political psychology, and uh, the misguidedness, so to speak, of this classical Marxist uh, way of thinking uh, about this challenge. And not only that, uh, Horkheimer fully transformed his thinking. And the first expression uh, of that um, is then the Dialectic of Enlightenment, the first major book that stands for represents critical theory of the Frankfurt School, type, um, and it contains that what I would still call probably the most important contribution to a theory of anti-Semitism, of modern anti-Semitism, the so-called elements of anti-Semitism, a chapter in the book that initially were desi was designed to be very central to the book, uh, and then it basically was relegated to a, to a late uh, a section, um, um, and uh, no longer had the centrality, and in the reception of the Dialectic of Enlightenment, that is also interesting, um, it really was uh, almost marginal. When you read about books, the canonic reflections of the Frankfurt School, the Dialectic of Enlightenment is always mentioned. Very, very few address the chapter of elements of anti-Semitism. While I make the case, it is central in more ways than one. It's central because um, it really transformed the, the confrontation with anti-Semitism, this multifaceted uh, problem, challenge, uh, what the critical theorists call the social injustice of our time, that's the way they put it, um, becomes the central focus of trying to understand what is going on in modern civilization, that such a barbaric regression, that such a catastrophe could be possible in the modern age. So they raise this question in light of anti-Semitism, in light of the Holocaust. And uh, this is what really drives this transformation of critical theory with all kinds of implications, which a new th uh, thinking about modern society using different sociological and other th sources, but really taking this, the challenge seriously to um, confront and try to process what the hell was going on with this uh, nightmare into this darkness and the, the, the atrocities that happened in the 20th century. And anti-Semitism for them at that point is a central dimension and aspect to it 
And in post-war history, not just generally, uh, this dimension was neglected and hardly discussed, but also in the reception of critical theory, it was hardly uh, discussed. As this, uh, the career of that chapter shows that only recently uh, has become, uh, uh, you know, has received a, a broader discussion again, and it was always uh, marginalized. And my point is really, uh, this is central to understanding why critical theory, the Frankfurt School critical theory that we know um, uh, evolved, why it transformed, why it became this uh, Frankfurt School theory in the 1940s. And my claim is also, as you pointed out, that this was the reflection of the real-time events unfolding in Nazi Germany and in Europe with the extermination of the Jews of Europe and their own particular empirical studies, which they conducted in the US and America, the empirical studies on uh, uh, authoritarian uh, dispositions and anti-Semitic ideology and also anti-Semitic agitators and anti-Semitic demagoguery um, taking place um, in America at the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems like what they what they found out is that rather than anti-Semitism being just the strategy, for example, and, and I hear this even today sometimes say that it was the strategy that Hitler used to kind of rally people and um, foment a certain kind of emotion, um, but it wasn't really the point, the point was something else. The point was economic um, oppression or economic dominance. Um, and yet what they seem to have found in, uh, is that, in fact, anti-Semitism was a central telos of Nazism. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was not ancillary. It was not just a strategy. Right. right. Um, yeah. So and that seems to have been, um, in a way, a surprise for them. Um, but what but what kind of is a consistent um theme of theirs is is the theorizing about modernity and when you read the dialectics of enlightenment it does seem often like a screed against modernity and i think in your book you you um take some time to explain that they're not uh anti-modern in any jerk way and in fact they're looking at anti-semitism and diagnosing it as a condition of anti-modern modern um modernism in a way or you write a comprehensive, total, anti-modern, modern world explanation. Mm -hmm. um, so, what? So, how is anti-Semitism um, part of a kind of just general human condition, and how is it different within the conditions of modernity? Mm -hmm. Well, um, they wouldn't say, they would say like as, uh, as basically driven by this idea that there's a, 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 you know, a history, historical process, they would say like we cannot really say something about a general human condition. They would argue indeed, just as you, you said, that there's something about modernity that enables anti-Semitism, but, anti but they're clearly not anti-modern thinkers. So uh, let me try to uh, unfold this argument a bit. Um, uh, um, the general premise that I, I make, and I start out is to make this clear in the introduction already, and it goes through this book, that, um, uh, yes, there's this misguided interpretation uh, of some even canonic receptions of critical theory to make them these general critics of modernity. Even the second generation of the Frankfurt schools, uh, so to speak, Jürgen Habermas, has this kind of uh, understanding that they, this was a, a, a negative uh, view of, of modernity. And um, uh, there are uh, isolated sentences, even the Dialectic of Enlightenment and later on, that seem to uh, support that kind of that narrative. 
um, that the critical theorists are anti-modern. There's a sentence, for example, in the first chapter of the Dialectic of Enlightenment, where Horkheimer and Adorno state um, di- uh, enlightenment is totalitarian. Now, this claim, this sentence, is of course um, just within. Uh, if you if you isolate it, um, uh, it sounds horrible or very problematic. Uh, but it, these are dialectical thinkers. So, just a page later, of course, this statement is retracted, relativized. So, and the whole point of the book and the whole point of critical theory is not to be anti-enlightenment and or to be anti-modern, but actually they say right and clear. Uh, from the start, that there is no uh, alternative to enlightenment, um, but we actually have to self-reflect on those things that are going wrong in modernity. So if you will, um, uh, you have to, rather than uh, abandoning enlightenment, you have to enlighten the enlightenment or enlighten modernity about its conditions. And the conditions, and now I want to turn to of modernity, where modernity is following blind patterns, where it's still somehow trapped into uh, problems of human society that human society has not really overcome. And for them, uh, these are patterns of uh, where domination is blind, where basically domination, social domination is reproduced without thinking why we're actually doing it. Uh, hierarchies um, are blind or unreflective. The, the mastery of a nature, uh, um, as we now cloak it in terms of economic growth, economic progress, are blindly reproduced and becomes, as they would say, an end of it uh, uh, in itself, an end in itself to to produce economic growth, for example, an end in itself to uh, to make profits um, in uh, in a company without reflecting. Um, uh, does that serve human needs? Does this fulfill human needs? Does this advance a human society? So they do see a link between uh, uh, wherever social domination is uh, blindly reproduced, unreflectively reproduced, there is actually uh, a path um, into um, uh, direct forms of social d- uh, domination. Um, a blind do- social domination are, is a problem, and it's a problem that is still with us in the 20th century, and it just takes a different form under modern conditions, the form of uh, modern uh, capitalism, the form of uh, modern uh, um, bureaucratic state apparatus, apparatuses where social and economic imperatives are pressing human beings to do things, to uh, be concerned and reprodu- to reproducing uh, their lives and uh, without reflecting of what they're actually doing and how far they actually help um, uh, um, uh, an ongoing process of, of social domination to continue. So that's right, so some of the, the, yeah, the general critique of, of modernity. But that, again, is not understood as an anti-modern critique. It's, it's a reflection on the modern conditions that help produce isolated individuals' authoritarian dispositions rather than um, overcoming them and modernity at the very same time for the critical theorists provide the conditions to overcome that. We have the technological and the social conditions and possibilities to have a much more, to live a much more free and emancipated life. And for the critical theorists, uh, that is not happening because the social order actually uh, uh, suffocates uh, many of our freedoms due to social imperatives and social pressures. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the the anti-Semitism is particularly modern because modernity creates the condition of that dominate, dominating blindness or create 
Well, there's a, of course, there's more aspects to this argument. This is just one thing. And actually, another claim that I want to make is uh, um, the when they theorize anti-Semitism, uh, the critical theorists, there is not the one key, the one explanation, the one theoretical model. But there are lots of trajectories and reflections of aspects that actually help engender modern anti-Semitism. So for the critical theorists, there's anti-Semitism that is not only modern. There's a whole history of religious anti-Semitism they talk about, Christian anti-Semitism, other forms of religious anti-Semitism. There's other forms of group prejudices and resentments that are much older than a modern society. So modern society cannot be the explanation for anti-Semitism. Um, uh, um, and same is true for racism, by the way. You know, there, uh, racism is not cannot just be a reflection of particular modern conditions. However, what happens is that modern anti-Semitism becomes so powerful to some extent, particularly powerful in under conditions of modernity, they will uh, uh, say, and under, of course, uh, in variations in different political cultures where, that, where it had more or less relevance, but it becomes partly so powerful because of the complexities of modern societies that are overwhelming to many people. And anti-Semitism, using contingent historical prejudices and narratives is providing a modern world explanation. So modern anti-Semitism really as a powerful political force emerges in the 19th century to some extent as a reflection of the, the, the problems, contradictions, and complexities of modern society, to some extent also as a reflection of the fact that Jews um, as, as part of modern society were equipped just as others with now with equal rights. Uh, minorities were equipped with equal rights, and also Jews were equipped more with equal rights. Now, particularly in the German case, uh, this, uh, um, these equal rights were only granted for a limited amount of time, and they were deprived again under uh, the swell of, of anti-Semitic uh, resentment and propaganda and uh, um, uh, social uh, attitudes. So, but the, uh, one of the claims here is really that um, anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism, also different from, from racism, uh, provides something else. It's not just a discrimination of Jews um, of, as a minority, as there we'll see in colonial racism. Uh, it's not just a reproduction of, of patterns of discrimination. It is that too, and it absorbs older forms of uh, discrimination. But modern anti-Semitism emerges in a very complex uh, um, and very often uh, a deeply torn um, modern societies, particularly of the first half of the 20th century, as a powerful world explanation. And it serves this, uh, this, this purpose as a conspiracy theory that basically personifies and identifies who is allegedly responsible for all that is wrong with modern society, for all the isolation and all the crises from unemployment to psychological distress, uh, from the pressure of modern uh, social imperatives, the um, modern anti-Semitism pro provides this objectified, this reified, handily uh, um, uh, coming in handily uh, world explanation. Um, of all these phenomena. And it absorbs, in doing so, it absorbs older forms of prejudice and resentments. For example, um, uh, resentments against Jews as uh, um, uh, salesmen, um, as bankers, as middlemen, um, or those professions into which Jews were locked into for a long time um, in, um, uh, since uh, the Middle Ages because they were restricted in uh, purchasing uh, land, for example, 
And so it has to do with contingent factors that becomes then actually are used into an anti-Semitic modern ideology. And that's uh, one of the trajectories, theoretical trajectories, um, uh, critical theory provides. Yeah, that's a great um, answer to my question, because it also answers the question, um, why the Jews? You know, mm-hmm. that, I'm mm-hmm. curious to know if, if this could, if the critical theory responds that, to that question, then that makes a lot of sense, that they're harnessing a lot of um, prejudices which which relate to the anti-modern mm-hmm. feelings that they have, and um, it's also a release valve for, and that gets back to the um, the way that the critical theorists are using psychological dispositions and emotions to explain these social um, events, that it, that these things are release valves for frustrations and also projecting um, one's own um, uh, one's own dissatisfaction and self-hatred um, mm-hmm. onto another. Um, so I think what you're, what you've kind of, in your book, you go over this very well in one of your late chapters, the difference between racism and anti-Semitism or the differences and similarities. Um, and so I recommend that chapter highly because it's very clarifying about what is the nature of um, anti-Semitism versus uh, other forms of hatred and what are the real function, psychological and social function of anti-Semitism. Um, and what I've gotten out of it is that um, really it's essentially anti-modern. And that's pretty interesting coming from the critical theory school. Um so one of actually the first questions I was going to ask you is uh, just to explain your title. Um, why is this a matter of unreason? And I think we've gone over this, but it might be interesting to just mm-hmm. like just pinpoint this term unreason. What you know what what is unreasonable about anti-Semitism and versus you know maybe some of the things that people might think are rational reasons to be mm-hmm. you know ra- mm-hmm. or maybe something like the early Horkheimer's explanations, which are kind of rationalist Mm -hmm. explanations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. uh, Very good uh, question. A very good point. Um, uh, Clearly, with the politics of unreason, I want to, uh, it's like an explanation mark of my interpretation or reinterpretation of critical theory and their work on anti-Semitism here. To clearly say, um, in fact, um, the Frankfurt School is not anti-modern, it's not anti-enlightenment, it's not this kind of critics of modernity and it's critics of reason, but self-reflection of reason. And that is what's, what, uh, what's needed, the, the, the self-reflection of rationalities that dominate modern life, and, uh, but ultimately a critique of unreason. And, um, and anti-Semitism is part of, there are other forms as well, of a politics of unreason that advances what Leo Löwenthal has called psychoanalysis in reverse, meaning that uh, it's not about enlightening yourself about your unconscious desires or misperceptions uh, that all of us have uh, in, uh, in the social world, but actually reinforcing those, reinforcing irrationalities, reinforcing, reinforcing blind uh, sentiments and resentments. And um, uh, what the critical theory has uh, shown, uh, shown is that there are also political forces that employ this irrationality, um, and they certainly do it until uh, this day. So it's an explanation, uh, it's an exclamation mark of sorts to say um, uh, we are talking and the critical theorists are criticizing truly um, politics of unreason. They're not critics of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of reason. Uh, they're actually criticizing politics of unreason. Um, that occur uh, all the time. Uh, in our post-factual world today, 
where facts are simply dismissed um, or where rationality or reason plays no role whatsoever. And the critical theorist would be the first to, to criticize this as a matter of, of blindness and less of uh, lack of reflection. So when they criticize certain rationalities in modern society that makes people susceptible to irrationalities or rationalities that uh, themselves are seen by the critical theorists are irrational to in its core, uh, for example, the irrationality to uh, not make humans the end of our purposes, but actually um, uh, things like uh, um, uh, um, the orientation towards uh, profit, um, uh, those things need to be reflected. And that's uh, a major uh, argument they make. So politics of unreason really points to um, the, uh, um, if you will, in modernity, the backlash. Uh, and the backlash for the critical theories, uh, theorists is, of course, to some extent built in. It's to some extent part of modernity that there are forces um, that uh, blindly rebel. Um, they call it an authoritarian rebellion, many of these movements, uh, including the fascist movements at the time. An authoritarian rebellion, a blind rebellion against those things in political modernity that... Uh, um, people feel uh, unhappy with or make them unhappy um, uh, or what Max Weber has called the iron cage of bureaucracy and the patterns of, uh, um, of uh, modern societies. So um, their claim is really, um, if you want to understand um, uh, the rise of anti modern anti-Semitism, there's a dialectic uh, at play here. Um, that on the one hand, anti-Semitism is a modern ideology. Um, it's not about um, uh, the Jews, really. Uh, it absorbs resentments, older resentments, contingent, contingent resentments against Jews, but it's not about the Jews. In fact, as I say in the book, and as the critical theorists would agree, and they do so in, in many uh, junctures and of their writing, um, anti-Semitism works very well in the presence of Jews, but it works even better when there are no Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, to, and easily you can actually transfer this. Uh, this also happen, you know, is uh, uh, you can apply to other minorities. Uh, it works very well if uh, um, there are minorities, other minorities, but discrimination and uh, hate speech works best if there are none. And you can just simply apply it. In the case of anti-Semitism, it's uh, particularly extreme because uh, Jews are no visible minorities. Um, so the projection mechanism, the conspiracy theorists, um, theories that uh, are at play in modern times and that see a big resurgence these days um, work easily because you can always, the anti, only the anti-Semite uh, knows who the actual Jews are and how the Jews are actually active, allegedly, um, behind the scenes to uh, fabricate, to maneuver the world, to guide the world, and to turn society into simply puppets. So um, uh, that's yeah, like a, a particular dimension. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it has a lot to do with um, um, a tendency to conspiratorial ideas, um, which relates, you know, to the first Nazi laws, which were against miscegenation and mixing. So, be, you know, I take it because, because you know, in that case, there could be people who pass as Germans and, and it's that mm -hmm. secret cabal of passers that um, kind of ignites the conspiratorial imagination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and uh, as you know, um, conspiracies uh, um, of that scale mass as, a, as, as part of mass politics uh, and now these days again prevalent on 
um, on social media um, are a very particular modern phenomenon that uh, not that there weren't conspiracies or conspiracy myths before, but that they became a political force, just like anti-Semitism is a very modern phenomenon. And I always say, once you're in the 19th and 20th century, once you're talking about conspiracies, for example, as the truthers have it um, with 9-11, these conspiracies that there's some dark, sinister forces basically uh, governing the world and uh, are responsible for wars or any kind of other major conspiracy myths, um, it's always just a tiny step um, towards anti-Semitism, towards blaming the Jews. Very often this connection is made uh, uh, within a text. Once you read something about a conspiracy myth, it's very close from the conspiracy to to anti-Semitism. That, of course, has historical reasons because um, not because of what Jews were doing or that Jews were conspiring, but simply because um, these myths uh, have over time evolved and been identified by agents, by actors with Jews. And so um, the desire to actually explain the world, the, if you will, the desire to 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 follow an experience, conspiracy theory that personifies all social problems and also even psychological problems, uh, then falls because of these anti-Semitic modern ideologies onto the Jews, and it just becomes reproduced uh, time and again uh, and activated again. And one example of that is, uh, I have to say, uh, without being explicitly talking about the Jews, and that's another insight of, of the many insights that the Frankfurt School uh, provides in analyzing anti-Semitism and modern Judeophobia, is that uh, anti-Semitism, particularly in democratic societies, and they observed that already in the 1940s, works very well with innuendo, with illusions, um, uh, without blaming directly the Jews and talking about the Jews do this, do the Jews do, do that, it's uh, allusions to an establishment and images that all of a sudden this establishment is put- portrayed only or primarily with uh, with Jews. And uh, I have to say one case of that, one instance of that, one instantiation of that is the, um, the last, the final campaign ad that um, President Donald Trump um, uh, um, uh, presented to the American public, um, where he six times in this two-minute campaign ad blames the establishment and then shows George Soros, uh, uh, shows uh, all kinds of world leaders allegedly planning a sinister uh, um, profit-seeking conspiracy against the American people. And once again, the Jews are not mentioned there explicitly, but uh, of course, the connotations and the ideas of a conspiracy against the American people, and then even showing explicitly Jewish, um, uh, um, a Jewish investor and Jewish uh, um, uh, um, economists and, and uh, Jewish, uh, yeah, Jews that. Um, of course, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, can mobilize without ever being overtly anti-Semitic. And uh, uh, as it works today, very often uh, people look for, uh, they would never declare themselves, I'm an anti-Semite, uh, as they would never say, I'm a racist. But to some extent, there is a need or, um, uh, or there's a mobilization of an anti-Semitism without being called anti-Semite or without uh, with the legitimacy of like, no, you're actually, when you hate the Jews or when you attack the Jews, you're actually not anti-Semitic. Or when you discriminate against blacks or other minorities, you're actually not racist. So there's a need for being uh, um, uh, or for harboring these resentments without being identified or without feeling 
that one is an anti-Semite or a racist. And there are mechanisms, rhetorical mechanisms for, for this kind of dog whistle now. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know, as one of my very last questions, because we're running out of time here, um, since we started the conversation talking about how Germany was talking about the Holocaust in the 80s and 90s, I'm curious to know how, what the reception of your book is when you go and talk in, um, in universities in Cologne, or mm-hmm, you, uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you spoke at the European Commission recently about Arendt. Um, so what uh, what kind of feedback do you get about these theories of anti-Semitism? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe just uh, back just one uh, second more to the previous question or what you said uh, before, uh, the mechanism. That's one of the chapters of the book, the seventh chapter, where I have lay heavy emphasis on that the critical theorists are not just these theoretical analysts. They're actually also very political and intervening political thinkers. And they in the seventh chapter, I show how much, uh, uh, how important uh, politics uh, is uh, for them and the reflection that actually political conditions, um, is there a legal state, is there a political climate that um, makes anti-Semitism more popular or acceptable or not so much, um, how important this is and how important are political mobilizations of anti-Semitism uh, uh, are so they really show, uh, and I try to show this in the seventh chapter, um, uh, the analysis they provided of the specific mechanisms and conditions in the political world that enable anti-Semitism and the mechanisms, the repertoire of mechanisms that uh, um, hate speech uh, in general and anti-Semitism uh, employs. So that's something that I, I I would like to emphasize as this I think is a an important contribution also of the book that has been. Uh, very for a long time uh, um, overlooked. Now, my experience when the, with these talks, I, I receive a, a, a lot of um, invitations. Obviously, particularly in the German context, I uh, even though I've never been a professor in Germany, I've uh, taught in the U.S., uh, in uh, Italy, um, in uh, in the Netherlands, where I'm now. Um, but uh, I have presented, of course, on the subject before, as I've worked on this in many many occasions and. Uh, um, uh, so I always had um, a sometimes controversial, but largely a positive uh, uh, reception, because in Germany, particularly also among the uh, more philosophically and uh, um, theoretically uh, interested um, uh, students and and uh, scholars, uh, there are quite a few, there's quite a, still a, a group of people or many who are interested in um, in the subject, in both sides of the subject, on uh, um, critical theory of the Frankfurt School and the study of anti-Semitism. So there's, a, to some extent, a favorable climate. I also have to say that, however, uh, neither the Frankfurt School nor studies of anti-Semitism are very much institutionalized uh, in Europe or in Germany. Um, so uh, there's a lot of demand among students. There are many students who are interested in the subject. Um, so there are quite, there's a uh, an enormous interest in the younger generations, uh, just as we've seen even 20 years ago with the Goldhagen debate. Um, the younger generations continuously keep asking questions, many of them, and many are interested in, in uh, um, exploring these subjects, exploring these theories, exploring these understandings. Um, uh, but in the, on the institutional level, there's a very limited uh, space. There's very limited space for scholarship on anti-Semitism. It's largely relegated to history. Um, there is some, uh, uh, though not very strong, Holocaust studies uh, that is institutionalized in uh, 
uh, in Germany um, and in Europe. Um, but there's very little now left also of uh, working through a classical Frankfurt School uh, work. The Frankfurt School, which had its heyday, so to speak, its, um, its presence in the universities in Germany after uh, Horkheimer and Adorno in the 70s and 80s basically has no institutional presence anymore at all. So there's a kind of uh, disjuncture between the uh, um, the younger audiences where many uh, show a strong interest in these kind of works and uh, uh, the lack of uh, institutionalization, so to speak. Yeah, if we had more time, I would I, we could talk probably about what might be the dispositional reasons that that the that the um, institutes are not making space for what is demanded. Um, but um, since we're running out of time, I wanted to ask you our traditional last question. Um, I really enjoyed your book, first of all, and I thought it was both. A, it was actually a very good introduction to critical theory, although I know that's not its raison d'etre. But um, mm-hmm. it was very clarifying about what some of the major and important insights of critical theory are, and it was an, a very enlightening uh, analysis of the nature of anti-Semitism and the insights that the critical theorists had towards it. And I'm wondering um, what is next? What project is next? Is there something, you actually wrote a book that doesn't sound very related (laughs) about sports uh, more recently. Um, And uh, so I'm wondering, is your, do you have a next project on the go and is it related? And um, Mm -hmm. what's your, what's your future? Uh, well, uh, one of the uh, the implicit legacies, probably of the Frankfurt's my my, my continuous interest in the Frankfurt School, uh, is probably that I've uh, always could not contain myself to just focus on one subject or one uh, um, a problem. So yes, I ventured out and, and wrote a couple of books on uh, global politics and sports. Uh, I work continuously on European politics, but ultimately these fields or the questions are related. Uh, They're a little bit interdisciplinary. I'm also working at an interdisciplinary department right now um, of European studies. Um, um, But my my current project actually, to some extent, uh, um, overlaps two interests. Right now, I just published a special issue on populism and the remaking of liberal slash illiberal democracy. Um, for a journal, and my one of my next projects is actually to use the critical theories work um, to use the Frankfurt School's work um, uh, for um, a critical theory of populism book, and that's a book I'm working on. And I'm also working on uh, a book on um, uh, for a longer time that is almost ready uh, on Hannah Arendt and Adorno and their relevance for understanding global politics. Uh, so there are two kind of critical theory Frankfurt School trajectories that are ongoing to some extent uh, following up to the politics uh, of on reason um, and to some extent continuing the conversation between um, uh, the relevance of these 20th century thinkers for understanding political phenomena today, as I'm interested in empirical politics and I'm interested in the problem of populism um, that uh, I've worked on also uh, for 10, 15 years. Yeah, that's amazing. I think a lot of people in politics are just now coming to the topic of populism. It's it's clear now that it's a very important and relevant and timely topic. So I'm really looking forward to seeing those publications come out. Um, so I want to just thank you for being on our show. Um, we've been talking to Lars Runsman of the University of Groningen about his new book, The Politics of Unreason, The Frankfurt School and the Origins of Antisemitism, which was published by SUNY Press this year, 2017. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Davida, for having me, and I very much enjoyed the conversation. I did too. Thanks. Thanks.